0: All right, so we're in Luke's gospel, chapter 22, and uh, this will be the the last message in Luke chapter 22. It has been a long one in Luke chapter 22. I, I, I don't remember the count, but it's somewhere like eight sermons in just this chapter alone. But granted, it's 71 verses long, so cut me some slack there. But I mean, it's a long one and we've been here for uh, uh, we've been here for a while but this is our last one next week lord willing we will be in chapter 23 now luke 22 has has been all about the 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 last day of the the passion week of jesus right that's what we call it the, the passion week this has kind of been the, the last day of the of the of the week kind of that thursday moving into passover they celebrated the passover meal uh, in the in the upper room. And, and this day in this chapter has had its ups and it's had its, it has it's had its downs. But for the most part, if you can think back now to, to when we got to the, the beginning of the week, which I think it was chapter 20, uh, it's, it's been a pretty good week. It, it has been a, a pretty good week that Jesus taught in the, the temple uh, every day. I mean, he was teaching and he was preaching, Uh, the gospel. He was confronting the religious leaders. He was healing uh, people of their sickness and their disease. And and the gospel and the kingdom of God was being uh, proclaimed. But this had also been the week that the religious leaders have had enough of Jesus. They were done. And it's in this week that they determined that We are not just going to marginalize him. We're not just going to belittle him, but our posture is going to be toward killing him. This is from the the beginning of the week. This is their posture. So every confrontation that they had during the week was all about tricking him, tricking Jesus so that they could kill him. Jesus didn't fit their plan, he didn't meet their standards. He didn't play by their religious rules. And so they have set themselves up to kill him. So in chapter 22 now, this last day, celebrating the Passover, the inauguration of the the Lord's Supper, which we get to celebrate this morning and, and take part of this morning as the church signifying the new covenant in his blood, that was sealed by his blood, Later that night, Jesus was betrayed by one of his own, Judas, and then denied by another one of his own, Peter. You know, when it comes to that, I was just thinking about that um, this week again. And I I think that if, if we didn't know it was Peter, I don't think we ever would have guessed it was Peter. Now, what we know from last week's story is from the historical context and all that was happening in the, the courtyard that night. They were in the, the the home of the the high priest and, and Jesus denied or, or I mean Peter denied Jesus three times. He gave into the to the fear of man, and in the first case it was the fear of a of a servant girl. Jesus was somewhere in that house facing the trials that he was going to face already. He was already facing and suffering the the psychological trials and psychological suffering of of being betrayed by by Judas and then being denied by uh, uh, Peter and then being arrested and this this rejection of all his people. He's dealing with that, but now what we will see this this morning, excuse me, in our passage is the, the physical attacks. That he would face. And and then the continual attacks on his character and his person. But one thing I want us to see that that may not be clear as we, we read this text this morning. Is that even when Jesus is abused. Wickedly mistreated and abused and belittled. We see Jesus who. Faithfully endures. Faithfully endures. In fact, in his enduring, he testifies to exactly who he says he is. And you know what? It did not matter who was asking. It did not matter who actually even believed it. It did not matter at all. About even who cared how he answered the question. But we see Jesus who endures because he is who he says he is. And even when everyone else around him, all of his buddies and all of his friends and all of those who would follow him, have ran and betrayed him. Let's look at chapter 22, starting in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you the son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it for ourselves from his lips. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy inspired and inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Now, What Luke tells us about what happens to Jesus in those first three verses, verse 63 through 65, the mocking, the beating, the abuse, the blasphemy, the cruelty to Him, is actually what happens after they've already questioned Him. They've already began questioning Him previously at night. So this is is what happens after they've questioned him and then they begin to beat him. This was a sort of a pre-trial that the high priests could have and the scribes who were gathered at the high priest's evening that night so that when they would gather as the Sanhedrin, they knew how they could condemn him so that he would die. And this is why in that pre-trial it was permissible for them to allow Jesus to be beaten because he in their hearts and in their minds they've already condemned him so beat him he's a blasphemer and in verse 66 the trial begins in the day where they take them to take him to the council to the sanhedrin now This isn't exactly one of those really fun passages that we like to read. It's not one of those passages like Galatians 5 or or Romans 8 or even John 3 that we we want to go to because, because it's what lifts us up. In the beginning of the week, knowing that this passage was coming, I really struggled. This is an easy passage to, to deal with. In fact, I think for, for most, this passage is, is kind of a, a scripture that's just kind of read through to understand the context and know what's going on. But, but let's, get to the, let's get to the cross. Let's get to the resurrection. And, and it, this passage is helpful. It gives us context. It, it helps us understand the, the extent of the suffering that, that Jesus went through. As I begin to reflect on it and unpack it some more, it's more than just information to get us to the cross. But it shows us more about Jesus. His purpose, his plan, his his character. And and, and oh, what what an example that he sets that is instructive and encouraging. You know several times in our uh, throughout Luke, I think we've looked to Isaiah fifty three in the Old Testament probably the most. But in Isaiah fifty three verse seven actually points us to what's being fulfilled in this text. Isaiah fifty three seven he says, "He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not." His mouth, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears, is silent. So he opened not his mouth. The prophetic text of the, that that is teaching and showing of the, the coming Messiah was of this verse was being fulfilled in that evening. Clearly the the hour of darkness was at hand, and their hour was at hand, but yet the scriptures were being fulfilled. And Jesus was fulfilling the will of the Father to do what? To endure so that salvation would be accomplished for his people, which was predetermined before the foundation of the world. So this morning I want us to see three important things from Jesus. First, and I think it's quite apparent, especially in these first three verses here, is that Jesus endured injustice from a fallen world. These first three verses in our passage describe just that, this physical abuse against Jesus was not right, right? We, we know that just from reading it, it, it says draws up in our hearts and our minds that there's something evil and something wrong that takes place. The pre-trial that, that never should have taken place took place. It was illegal. In the Jewish law, it was illegal to do that. It was illegal for them to beat a, a person who was charged with something that hasn't been convicted. That kind of brutality and that abuse is, is against Jewish law. You know, one of the premises of our, of our legal system is supposed to be that you are innocent until you are proven guilty. So the mistreatment of charged in, uh, individuals for certain crimes is Illegal. their system wasn't exactly like ours, but that premise was there that you don't abuse a prisoner until they are convicted. And Jesus hadn't been convicted yet. Not to mention, none of this should have taken place in the darkness. And not only that, the high priest was there the whole time. All of this was under his authority at his house, at his place. And they allowed this to happen when they of all, she, of all people should not have. The whole thing was a farce. It was a, it was a joke. They interrogated him, already knowing in their minds what they were going to do. And it didn't matter what Jesus said, they were going to do it. And yet this sort of injustice isn't isn't anything new. This isn't surprising when when we read this. Injustice is something that humanity has always been doing on one another ever since Genesis chapter 3. It's a wicked byproduct of sin. This past Monday, we celebrated or observed Martin Luther King Day, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And we all know what what he stood for. We we all know who he was and what he stood for and what what he spoke for and the injustices that were a part of our country. And then on Thursday, this past Thursday, a day that should be remembered and not celebrated, the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, when abortion was legalized in our country and since then more than 61 million babies have been destroyed in the womb genesis slavery murder of racism abortion on and on and all it's all injustice all of it and it's all a byproduct of the sinful heart of man history is riddled with injustice Far and wide and close. Because history is full of sinners. History is full of sinners. Present is here full of sinners. And future will be full of sinners until Christ comes back. And why? Because sin is in our fallen world so we're not just learning here the first time about injustice but rather what we are seeing is how Jesus shows us how we face and endure such injustice as Christians we have all people of all people in this world know the level of injustice and how wicked this world can get and has been. We know that it has fallen. We know the dominion of darkness that is all around us. Sin and sinners should not surprise us. Christians understand injustice as ones who have stood in the face of it. And throughout history wherever you find someone standing against injustice, a movement against oppression and abuse, you will always find Christians leading the way. Christians standing for freedom and standing for righteousness. Because Christians understand the freedom from sin and darkness through the gospel. And we have our example here in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 63, says, they mocked him and they beat him. Verse 64, they blindfolded him and they mocked him, hitting him and, and, and telling him to prophesy, who hits you? Wow. And you know what? Verse 65 tells us that it gets a whole lot worse, doesn't it? In fact, it gets so bad that I don't think Luke really had the heart to tell us how bad it really got. Or even tell us the gory details. And yet we know what's going down. We know the injustice and the abuse when we see it. But Luke wants us to see, he wants us to see more than just that. He wants us to see that yes, Jesus suffered, but yet Jesus also endured. He endured the injustice and the mistreatment and the abuse. Just as Isaiah 53 verse 7 said that he would. And he did not open his mouth when they were beating him and mocking him and telling him to prophesy. And he was enduring for us. And you know why? You you know what the greatest of all injustices ever? And why this is the greatest of all injustice? And I don't care what people say. That this is the greatest of all injustices ever. And you want to know why? Because Jesus was not like you and he was not like me. He was perfect, and he was sinless, and he was spotless, and he obeyed the law perfectly. He never did anything ever to deserve this. This is why it is the greatest injustice ever. He was mistreated and abused and beaten as if he was the guilty one. What happens to Christians... When we read this and we hear all of this that happens to Jesus, you know what really happens to us is we begin to know about this injustice and how real it is. Because the real injustice is we know, if we know grace, then we know we were the ones that deserved what Jesus got. That's why it's unjust. It's not unjust just because wicked men are beating Jesus. It's unjust because we should have been the ones who took it. That we deserved. We deserve that punishment. Not him. When I think about my own life, when I think about my sins that I have committed in my life, I, I, I cannot... Stop but think about the mercy of God and how he has spared me so much of what I deserve. In his kindness and in his mercy, he has kept me from what I deserve. Jesus didn't have the sins like I have. He doesn't have the baggage like like I have, not a single one. And yet he was abused and mistreated for you and for me. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, draws attention again to this particular event. And Peter draws for us, interesting that it's Peter, draws for us. A strong application of this mistreatment that Jesus faced, starting in verse twenty-one. It'll be on the screen where you can turn there. First Peter chapter two, verse twenty-one. It says this: "For to this you have been called." Now, now what uh, we will read this at the end of our service, but but what it means is is it means everything that he has said earlier in the chapter, and that is that is to endure suffering. That as Christians, you are enduring suffering. You are enduring injustice. And why are you enduring suffering in injustice from others? For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. So, for to this you have been called. Right? To endure suffering and to endure. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you, what? An example So he's left us an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. The footsteps that Jesus led for us that evening are the same footsteps of how we endure suffering and injustices in this world comes against us when we are mistreated, when we are arrested, when we are beaten, when we are marginalized, when we are not given that promotion, that job, whatever it may be, for the sake of the gospel, we follow the example of our Savior. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's powerful. That's powerful. Because in a a fallen world, injustice is everywhere. In a broken world now where people have no inclination to forgive. In fact, they demand justice unjustly. That they think that they have a right to demand justice unjustly. Brothers and sisters, it is not hard to figure out. I mean, we know this. We live in a place full of vitriol and anger. And anger. Full of mockery, full of Rage and a desire to get revenge and crush people. And in that kind of world, what are the scriptures telling us Christians on how to endure? Peter says, look to Jesus. Look how he endured the greatest of all injustice for you. And endure like he endured. Endured like Christ did. Without reviling, without threatening, without revenge. But to trust in the righteous judge. The sovereign. The sovereign Lord. I want you to know that I am not belittling Some of our suffering and our injustice that we have made of might have faced, or even injustices and other suffering around the world. I know it's real and it hurts and it's hard. And I know some of you in this room, you know deeply the hurt, the suffering, and the pain of being mistreated. And even in unimaginable ways that maybe you've told nobody about. But what I think what we are meant to see here. Is in all the injustices, we need to go back to Jesus and we need to see how he was mistreated and we need to remember how he was what he experienced and that he experienced the greatest injustice and how his experience goes far beyond any other human being that has ever endured. Yes, we care and we fight for injustices in our world around us as we see them. But let them be in the context to the suffering and the injustice of the Son of God. And so when we hear of all that Jesus endured, and when we see how Peter, through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, is telling us that Jesus is our example and how we are to endure, in this fallen world, then brothers and sisters, we must be prepared then to endure like Jesus. So that when we face suffering and injustice and mistreatment in our fallen world, our response and our attitude will will naturally be, Lord, I'm ready for this. Your word has done a work in me, and I can endure as Jesus endured. You've made me for this. And in fact, when we endure as Jesus does or did, as the scripture tells us, we will look more and more like our Savior. Wow. Isn't that our prayer? To look more and more like our Savior. We want to say in the flesh, why me, O Lord? Why am I facing such abuse, and what have I done to deserve this? And we want to react as the world does in revenge. A world and a culture that touts love and acceptance and tolerance. But if it's not the love and acceptance and the tolerance according to their rules, which, by the way, are always changing, then you will be destroyed if you do not come underneath it. Not just punished, but destroyed. And that's what the flesh wants. And if you've ever been faced by such hatred and such hurt from others mistreated, then you'll know this temptation. But by grace and by his mercy, we put it into the context of the suffering of our Savior. And we endure as he has endured. And be prepared to respond as Jesus did so that he would receive all the glory and that the gospel would be made much of in our suffering. Second, I want to show you the surety of Jesus' testimony, the surety of Jesus' testimony. So verse 66, the day has come, and the injustice continues, even in the day. The Sanhedrin gathered, the, the, the council of religious leaders, which, by the way, how in the world did they not see the face of Jesus and not determine what exactly went down that evening when the rest of them gathered? They gathered witnesses together, and this is from the other gospel accounts, they gathered witnesses that would, that would testify against Jesus, but what soon became clear is that those witnesses were morons, and they couldn't get their story straight, and they contradicted one another. Jesus would not answer those ridiculous witnesses. So the, so the Sanhedrin, or the, the, the council, verse 67, they, they become the prosecutors now, And in their line of questioning, they intend for Jesus to incriminate himself. They intend for Jesus to incriminate yourself. You tell us, Jesus, if you are the Christ, the Messiah. You just got to love Jesus' responses. His responses are always wonderful. And he says, if first, he says, if I tell you, you will not believe. Now, why would he say that? Well, because they won't. They, they, they won't believe. They're not, they're not asking that question like, uh, uh, like how Nicodemus did, right? How Nicodemus honestly was asking those questions of, of Jesus and the kingdom and the gospel and, and, and who he, he was. And, and another thing, Jesus had been in Jerusalem all week long doing what? Proclaiming the gospel, teaching about the kingdom of God, giving the signs that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah. And yet... What was the outcome? Unbelief. Arresting. Verse 68, he continues and he says, and, and if I ask you, you will not answer. Now, why would he say that? Because they won't answer. If you remember earlier, when they asked him a question, they were questioning his authority about how he did those things in the temple, the signs and wonders, and he turned the tables over, and how Jesus was proclaiming and teaching the gospel in the temple. They're like, By what authority do you do these things? And what did Jesus say? I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. If you tell me, what? Where did John's baptism come from? Did it come from man or did it come from heaven? And how did they answer? They didn't. They didn't answer uh, the question. They they didn't answer uh, the question at all. Why? Because they were cowards. And they feared the crowds rather than they feared what? Truth. Truth and honesty, I mean, just flat-out honesty. And they lied. They had an answer. They knew the answer to that question to them. But in verse 69, Jesus answers their question, and he makes a confession of who he is. He says, but from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, we're gonna talk about this, this verse a little bit more extensively in the next point. But when the chief priests and the high priests and the elders and the scribes ask if he was the Christ, what does he say? He says, you'll see me seated at the right hand of God. I am more than just the Messiah. I am the son of man. And this is why they shoot back the question in verse 70. Are you the son of God then? Are you the son of God? And then we have Jesus' answer. In our our translations, if you're reading the ESV, it says, says, you say that I am. Now, that's a great translation. It's it's a very word-for-word translation. However, it it makes it sound like Jesus is kind of passively agreeing with them. That he's passively agreeing with what they said, and he's he's kind of omitting it, but not really omitting it. The problem with that, though, is that the intent of the Greek implies that Jesus is very much admitting that he is the Son of God. So literally what he is saying is, I am who, I, who you say I am. You're right. He's not just passively agreeing. Right? That's a direct literal translation, right? But what the intent of the Greek is to say that he is absolutely admitting who he is. And the reaction of the council in verse 71 is a sign that that is true. He is absolutely admitting. It is quite clear. So here's our Savior, beaten, battered, mocked, rejected, and suffering, facing injustice. What is the one thing that Jesus is quite confident and quite sure of? That he is the Christ that he is the Son of Man, and that he is the Son of God. And so, brothers and sisters, in the face of such adversaries, the surety of Jesus' testimony of who he is, when we face such adversity and trials, let us be sure in who Jesus is. We must be prepared and ready to be sure absolutely who Christ is is, isn't it interesting that Luke has put the trial, I don't know if you've looked at the other gospels or not, but, but, but usually it goes the trials of Jesus and then the denial of Peter, but Luke puts the denial of Peter, and I think they're kind of happening somewhat simultaneously in the evening trials, right, uh, at, at, the, at the same time, but Luke puts the denial of Peter, and then he puts the, the trials, and why is that? Well, I I think there's two reasons. This is kind of me speaking here, but I I think these make sense. Um, And I think this first one is this, that as Christians, everyone who would follow Jesus down throughout history can know for certain that Jesus confidently confessed and believed that he was the Son of God and that he was the Christ and that he is the Son of Man. That there was no wavering for Jesus at all. There was no turning. There was no fear. There was absolutely no hesitation at all. He is who he says he is. And, brothers and sisters, that makes all the difference in the world for our endurance and in our testimony in this fallen world. But, second, it's also to show how quickly Peter denies Jesus because of the fear of man in the flesh and that he failed. But what do we see in Jesus when asked? He doesn't fail; that He endures. And so, where we fail, Jesus does not fail. And in these two things, where is our confidence? Where is our endurance? Where does it lie? It lies in Christ. For as Christians, we should know. And we should have a surety in the testimony of Jesus Christ. For in the name of Jesus, the Son of God, there is no salvation. There is no salvation. And there's no name under heaven by which a person can be saved. And if you claim to be a Christian, then it's only in his name that we can claim any assurance for our future and our present In our eternity the assurance lies in the name of christ so let's be sure in these things let's be certain let's be confident in his name and as a church we should be we should be providing or preparing ourselves for the inevitable the inevitable of being questioned do you believe this do you really believe that jesus is the son of god I mean, sooner than and later, we're gonna have to either believe what we believe and then say what we believe and confess what we confess or not. We will face mistreatment otherwise. We must prepare, brothers and sisters, the next generation. Because if you don't face it, the next generation certainly will. We have a a task before us to have a surety and a strength in the solid rock of Christ. And then when, when we are confronted by our adversaries and mistreated and abused and for injustice, we face it and endure as Christ endured. But when we are asked, we confess because we believe it and we know it to be true. As Jesus did. That evening. We will face it sooner and later, and we must be prepared and have confidence in the name of Jesus Christ even in the face of mistreatment. Jesus told us to be ready, He said it would come, and that we should face it with joy and with confidence. Now, last, this brings me back to our, to our last point this morning. So we have Confidence and surety in the testimony of Jesus Christ. He is who he says he was, and he confessed it. And that we are to be ready to confess and face mistreatment even with joy. And in this last point, here's why. The reason is, is because Jesus is the center of all of our hope. He is the center of of all of our hope. Now look back to verse 69. And I want you to hear again what Jesus says. He says, but from now on, the son of man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So right after being asked by the Sanhedrin, if he was the Christ, this is what he quoted. And and this comes from from two very well-known Old Testament passages. The first part, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, to be up on the screen, is this. It says, I saw in the night the visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given what? Dominion. And glory and kingdom and all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Now that is monumental in what Jesus was saying when he said he was the Son of Man. Remember, it is the hour and power of darkness. And he is saying that in the light... There's come one like the Son of Man to the ancient of days. And here he is. And this is very important text to the Jews, especially to those in the Babylonian captivity when it was given. This was a promise that they, they held on to. This was their their hope during captivity that the Son of Man would come and rescue and establish their kingdom forever and ever. And that kingdom would be everlasting. The Son of Man is a Messianic title, who from the ancient of days would receive dominion and glory and a kingdom of all peoples. in a kingdom that is everlasting, that will not end, that will never end. And so when Jesus says what he says in verse 69, he's telling them, it's like, so you're asking me if I am the Christ? But what you are going to see is you are going to see the Son of Man standing before the Ancient of Days in all glory, in power, in dominion, and you will see me seated at the right hand of God. Jesus, not only is Jesus telling the Sanhedrin who he is, but he is telling them, I am the one who is going to judge you. I am the one who is going to judge you. Now, if you were a Christian, verse 69, what does it sound like then to us? What does that give us? To the wicked, it's judgment, it's fear, it's wrath, it's a call to to repentance. But what does that then mean for Christians in verse 69? He's telling us that that whatever mistreatment, injustice, suffering, trial that you may face now for the sake of the gospel, be that good example. Do what I have done that I have set before us. But hear this, hear the truth, and believe it, that the Son of Man right now is seated in the seat of power at the right hand of God. Now what does that mean for us? That's the center of our hope. That's the center of our hope. It's the center of our hope. Luke's gospel has always been pointing us to that Jesus is our hope. And that we can have certainty in that hope. I mean, the book's theme for us has been on and on and on. Don't have confidence in yourself, man. But put your confidence and certainty in Christ. That's your hope. That's your hope. He is your hope of salvation. He is your hope for eternal assurance when you face present suffering in a fallen world, just like Jesus did. The hope we have is not in ourselves, it is not what we can build, it is not what we can do or accumulate or accomplish, but Christian hope is in Christ. Alone, For our salvation, for our justification, for our sanctification, for our perseverance and our glorification. In his work on the cross and in his person as the son of God who is seated on the throne at the right hand of the father. That is our hope. Things are hard. Sin is real. The enemy is set against us and the flesh is strong. We do almost everything in this life in weakness, don't we? And on top of that, we experience the injustice, the abuse, and suffering, and mistreatment of a fallen world. We are a broken people with broken hearts, battered by sin in the world. But why do we endure? Why do we keep coming back? Why do we stay? Why do we come to the table together? The answer is in what we proclaim together symbolically when we take that simple meal from that table. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has endured on our behalf, that He has overcome, that He is our salvation and that he stands at God's right hand, and he sits at the right hand of power, because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And all dominion and all glory has been given to him, and it is an everlasting dominion and an everlasting glory, and it will never pass away. right now we live in a dominion of darkness and the hour is at hand but Jesus is on the throne and he is at the right hand with the power of God and brothers and sisters one day one day he will come again in that power and in that glory it will be on complete full display And every mistreatment, every injustice in his righteousness will be made right. He is the center of our hope because he is the Christ, the Son of God, who sits at the right hand of the Father. So brothers and sisters, have hope this morning when you endure have confidence and surety in the name of Jesus Christ who endured for us what we deserve. And when we take this supper in just a while, I want you to remember what we are proclaiming. I'll read it then, but we proclaim his death and his resurrection until he returns as the righteous judge. And that is our hope. And that is how we endure. And that is the example that he has set for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word. We pray, O God, that it would continue to have its full effect in our hearts and in our souls to conform us more to Christ. Lord, help us to endure by the example set before us by the hope that is set before us in Jesus. Lord, forgive us as we've oftentimes trusted in ourselves, we've trusted in our flesh. Lord, let us look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so we trust in him and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.